Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to episode 154 of the Love That Album podcast, proudly part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, devoted to music discussion podcasts. It's February 2022 as we're recording this second episode of the year, and I'm welcoming back two people who I'm going to nominate them as a crew. I think I want to do a lot more shows with these two people, because the last time we all got together, we had the best time. I thought it was one of my favorite episodes ever. Back in November 2019, I invited Kerry Gatley-Fristo and Shane Pacey to talk about Marianne Faithful's Broken English. That's certainly one of my favorite episodes out of anything that I've done with this show so i needed to get the crew back to talk about Joni mitchell yay lady Joni, on the top of my screen which won't matter to you dear listener because you can't see her is film writer and music enthusiast and in a previous life professional singer so that's going to come up somewhere in the conversation Kerry Gatley Fristo, welcome back to the show, Kerry. Thanks for having me. It's great to come back and, and especially to talk about Joni. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of Joni talk here today. Some Jaco talk, too, I imagine. We were talking like earlier on this week. It's been a little while since you've had a chance to write for either of your blog site, Prowler Needs a Jump, or the Brattle Theatre Film Notes. 2018 is doing professional writing getting in the way of doing writing that you love. Yeah, a little bit. I was writing a lot on my blog and on, on various other blogs about film at a time when I wasn't writing for a living. 
<laughs> so yeah, now that I do it every day, you get a little burnt. And I'm going to start again soon. I mean, I've got lists all over my house, quite frankly, of you know, something that occurs to me like, oh, wait, a movie that relates to another movie that relates to another movie. Right now I'm on a Basil Dearden kit, right? So I've been watching all of these old, not just him, but a lot of British crime films. I watched The Blue Lamp last night with uh, Dirk Bogart as a youth. Have you watched it all night long? Oh, God, I love All Night Long. I called it All About Iago because it's sort of <laughs> Othello meets All About Eve in a jazz club with Richard Attenborough. I mean, it's pretty cool. Keith Michelle, I don't think people even sort of much talk about him anymore, but he was one of Australia's finest actors from that period. Absolutely terrific. Uh, so, all right, welcome back, Kerry. And our Marianne Faithful-loving partner, the other member of this trio, guitarist, songwriter. He has some side projects called the Bondi Cigars, the Shane Pacey Trio and Pacey King and Dolly, but he's working up to his main gig, the Moderna Blow Darts. Oh, yeah. Well, welcome back to the show, Shane Pacey. Ah, <laughs> uh, thank you, Morris. Isn't that a great band name? The Moderna Blow Darts. <laughs> Tell us about these short-lived side projects. Now, in all seriousness, your latest project is Pacey King and Dolly, which I think we spoke about middle of last year. You were working your way towards that. Uh, yeah. But the album, you recorded it in pretty quick time, and it's out now. I'll put a link up to it in the show notes. It's up on Bandcamp, but tell us a little bit about this band, Pacey King and Dolly. I'm getting ready for the duration Busy making the next generation We're a permanent coalition Getting ready for a new edition It's time to make some new traditions a congregation of musicians who the only thing we had in common was that we were all sort of from the blues and R&B and sort of soul funk scene in Sydney and Clayton uh, the organ players is kind of organ player for hire really he's the go-to guy with Jimmy Barnes and Richard Clapton and sessions and stuff as well as his own stuff Sally that one of the vocalists is three of us singing four of us actually uh, she's always been a bit of a mainstay on the Sydney blues scene great voice in that kind of soul arena and me and we just we were thrown together really to do blues fest in Byron Bay which didn't happen first year but we, th we brought it back together again the year after that and then it didn't happen again <laughs> so we're just hoping that because we've been booked every year so we, we came together for that but we've got a whole bunch of other shows booked as well if you check our Facebook pages we've got about eight shows booked yeah whenever we can all do it because we're all doing other things and it's turned out very nicely I've got to say um, mainly because of the vocals we've got four strong singers and that really does I just love doing harmonies and being part of a big harmony setup. so yeah it's really good some terrific songs your album that's out now is called Better Together I've uh, been listening to it on Bandcamp getting the CD in the mail hopefully later on this week one thing that I'm a huge sucker for is a band with that Hammond sound. Oh, yeah. And Clayton is a terrific organ player. It just brings in a beautiful texture. Oh, for sure. And a real Hammond, too. I mean, you know, it, when we play live, most of the time he uses a digital kind of approximation, which sounds great, but there's nothing quite like that big 
Hammond through a Leslie vibe. It covers sonic space that nothing can really imitate. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, you being able to come down to Victoria. Oh, that'd be so good. Yeah. Things are in the works, so we'll see what happens. If there are any band promoters who listen to this show, consider this an official request. Bring a <laughs> dolly down to Melbourne. All right. Well, anyway, I don't think I've mentioned... I mean, we've said... We've mentioned the name Joni a couple of times, but we haven't actually gone and said specifically what we're going to be talking about. So we've gotten together to talk about the 1976 album from Joni Mitchell called... Is it Hajira or Hajira? For years I've said Hajira, but I've heard some say Hajira. Where do you guys stand? Hajira. Hajira. All right, that's what we'll... Yeah, yeah, soft soft J, yeah, for sure. All right, that's what we're going to go with. It's Hajira. It depends on what Arabic country you're from. (laughs) Right, that is a translation. It doesn't... It means flight, but... um... Exodus or a pilgrimage, yeah. Wow, no, I never knew that. There you go. Well, that's what we're going to go with, Hijira. So what we're going to do now is just go to a quick break. Joanne will give you the contact details. I've got a nice little clip for you to have a listen to before we come back. We'll come back uh, shortly to uh, talk about Joni Mitchell's album, Hijira. You'll listen to episode 154 of Love That Album. This is a phase to the end of our day. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash lovethatalbum and start a music-related discussion. I'd like to tell you about a new album. It's by Joni Mitchell. And it's called Hijira. Hijira means flight. When you go into your record store, you'll recognize it by the cover. It's a beautiful picture of Joni dressed in black fur and against a snowy landscape. And if you buy the album and take it home, you'll be opening it up. And inside, you'll find the lyrics printed out. And another picture of Joni skating across the ice with wings, like a black crow, which is the name of one of the songs on the album. And if you take the record out and put it on your turntable, you'll find yourself inside Hijira. Joni Mitchell's incredible new album. Racing away You just picked up a hitcher Prisoner around the white lines on the freeway Hijira, the season's best on Asylum Records and Tapes. And we're back from break. Morris over here, Shane over there, and Kerry a lot further over there, the other side of the world. Massachusetts, is it? Yes, it is. Yes. Massachusetts. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I think that might be our state song. I'm not kidding. No, okay. Well, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a brave soul that shoves that name into a song, isn't it? <laughs> You've got to give them kudos, kudos for that. <laughs> I wouldn't. 
You're not a brave soul. No, hmm. definitely not. All right, so we're here to talk about Joni Mitchell's Hegira album from 1976. Uh, there's a lot to cover about this album, conceptually, musically. It's an album I've really wanted to bring to this show for a long time. And I did have someone say to me years ago, yeah, hey, I'd love to come on your show and talk about Joni Mitchell's Blue. And we will be talking a little bit about Blue, no doubt, because you sort of got it. But I always wanted this album to be the focus. So I want to go around the table. I'll start off with you, Kerry. When did you first fall in love with the music of Joni Mitchell? And when did you come to Hegira? Very early. My dad had uh, Ladies of the Canyon and Blue. I might have been seven or eight. I mean, they came out when I was younger than that, but I was probably seven or eight when I started listening. And I sang, you know, I was a, I, at the time I just sang, you know, around the house and in the shower and, you know, all that. But um, I loved singing along to her tunes. Ladies of the Canyon is the first album that I listened to over and over and over. And, you know, of course it's an, an LP. So, you know, you just pick up the, and okay, I'm going to listen to that one again. And I'm going to listen to that one again. Or I want to practice that one part again, again, again. So I would sing, I loved for free. I slept last night in a good hotel. I went shopping today for jewels The wind rushed around in the dirty town That was just absolutely adore that song. But there were a lot of songs on there that I liked. Rainy Nighthouse is beautiful. Conversation, Ladies of the Canyon. I mean, there, it, there's some lovely, lovely songs on that album, but that's the first one. And then Blue. Hegira came a little later. Uh, also, my dad. My dad had all three of these albums. He had Hegira because he was a jazz guy, is a jazz guy. He loves jazz and he was a jazz DJ and heavily into jazz. And he used to go into Boston to all the jazz clubs and he knew Pat Metheny and Mike Metheny. And because of that, there's like the Jaco Pastorius connection and all that sort of stuff. I don't remember when he got this, but I don't think it was like in 76 when it came out. I think it was a little later. It was just so interesting. It was so different. I always, I mean, the two songs that really are the most striking to me are Coyote and Amelia. Both of those, I mean, I like a lot of the other songs are beautiful, but those two just, I could listen to those two on a loop, you know, all the time. <laughs> and my dad, too, because we used to listen to it all the time. <laughs> he would just play it. Okay, you finish the album and he just, okay, I need to hear that. Again. How about you, Shane? So if you were a young man in the 70s, especially the mid 70s, and you were sort of going out with girls, you go back to their place and invariably they'd have not the albums that you had. So we were all, it was all about Dylan and the Stones and Zeppelin and not much singer-songwriter stuff at that time, for me anyway. And you go to a girl's place and there'd always be some Joni Mitchell, some Carol King, Carly Simon, uh, and Cat Stevens was another perennial. And so you'd hear it by stealth. I'd just hear this stuff by stealth. And I suppose Joni was the one I could identify with because it was incredibly musical. So that was my first intro. And so it didn't really connect with me that much then because I was just listening just to be polite and for other reasons, I guess. And then... (laughs) And then, so then, then it's two watchings of the last waltz. So the first time I saw it, she did. She's on the last waltz doing Coyote, and again, it, it sort of passed by me. I thought that's pretty good. But then when I saw Last Waltz again a few years later, like four or five years later, I thought, well, she's actually better than just about everybody on here. Now that I know a bit more about what she was doing, because I'd got into her by then, I thought she's just 
head and shoulders above everybody as far as composition and uh, melody and uh, lyrics. And then it's just a bit a long process of exploration for that crucial run of albums between probably Blue and Don Juan's Reckless Daughter. That's a, almost a flawless run of albums, I think, and it goes for a long time. She's done other great stuff. The, the, the early stuff's really nice, but she just hooked onto this way of doing things that was just uniquely her. And whenever you see things like, oh, this female is influenced by Joni Mitchell, and you go, no, she's not. She hasn't <laughs> She hasn't done anything that's as sophisticated as Joni can do. She's just got a high voice. So, yeah, it's been a long journey and incredibly fascinating. So as for my own discovery, I mean, in the early 80s, I had a friend who, well, like your dad, Kerry, was a big Pat Metheny fan, and he introduced me to the music. Music of Pat Metheny. I think the album First Circle was where I jumped on board for Pat. We went to see him in concert. And at that stage, I was sort of like wanting to get hold of absolutely anything I could of Pat's. And then the same friend had a copy of the album Shadows and Light. And I thought, yeah. he's got Pat Metheny on it. Don Elias and Jaco Pistorius. just absolutely amazed you know thinking what else has this singer done and actually just as a bit of a side note i've only just seen i think for the first time in the last year or two the shadows and light concert which is on youtube so the album is a soundtrack to this concert film she's completely in command of her craft i've followed that up with the album Hegira because, well, Jaco, who was in this concert, is playing on this album. I thought, oh, wow, better hear what else he's done. And I had not heard anything like it to that point. As I said, this is the mid-80s, and this is like at a time where I was just starting to get into jazz fusion. And this album is not jazz fusion, but no. it is jazz musicians' approach to creating pop. I mean, look, okay, I know that there are people who could probably say that bands like Steely Dan were doing that sort of thing, but Steely Dan have never never spoken to me i've never been a fan of their music just too shiny musicianship is flawless but just musically never spoke to me but this really did we might have to have words about that steely dan uh, <laughs> yeah what the <laughs> hell yeah look, they're gonna quit on me folks yeah fuck off uh, no. <laughs> no sorry excuse me no I, I guess this is not the time to talk about you know that i'm only ambivalent about frank zappa as well oh <laughs> Peasants are revolting. But no, coming back to this album, musically, Hajira grabbed me straight away, but it took a lot of listens, like a lot of the best albums do, to fully grasp. Well, I, I wouldn't even say I fully grasped it, but to sort of have a better grasp on what she was doing here, uh, lyrically and thematically, as well as the music structure. In my head, it's something like a, a concept album. It's about traveling or moving or not being in the one place, at, at the very least. And Kerry being as well a, a big film fanatic as well. I sort of li I listen to this music and I think it would be a great soundtrack for films like Paris, Texas or Baghdad Cafe, or I was recently re-watching the beautiful blue re-release of David Lynch's film, The Straight Story. In terms of the song structure here, I think, and it, I know that it's a pretty lazy comparison 
comparison to sort of say, oh, well, you know, she's like Bob Dylan. And I can see, though, in one regard that this album is Dylan-esque in that the lyric structure, there's no verse, chorus, verse, chorus. It's just each verse she's singing or she's telling a story or part of a story what she has to do. But I think that she has chord structures that maybe Dylan couldn't achieve or maybe just wasn't interested in going to it. She was, I think, technically a more, I don't know, I don't want to use the word capable. What do I want to use? Sophisticated, yeah. More, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, yeah, more sophisticated tunesmith maybe than uh, than Dylan was. Now, I know she's had a few things to say about being compared to Dylan, and I wouldn't say she looks at him with disdain, but I think think that she has some issues with him would be fair yeah. to say yeah well i think he's among her paramours at one point <laughs> i was reading this long article about songs and who they related to which was very interesting to me because it wasn't something that i knew a-, a lot about apparently uh she spent some time with dylan at some point and didn't have a lot of, it, her song was very uh, it's talk to me which is basically the fact that he doesn't communicate i mean unless he's writing songs that like in his personal life he's just shut down there was a moon and a street lamp i didn't know i drank such a lot till i pissed a tequila and a corner the full length of the parking lot oh i talked too loose again i talked too open and free i pay a high price for my open talking like you do for your silent mystery he saves it all for his music and for his writing, I guess. And in real life, you can't get him to, have, you know, to really communicate with you. But that's- I thought Dylan was a bit, bit on the spectrum, actually. It seems to me, even looking at his early stuff like the Don't Look Back film, it just seems like he's, like you say, shut in. Horrible confession here, but I, I only watched Don't Look Back for the very first time just in the last week. And I mean, the film was a revelation. And in a way, I think that was probably he's presenting an image of himself, but he was probably the most open that I've ever seen him. I mean, he's still still playing games of cat and mouse with the journalists, with the fans. It's, It's all an intellectual exercise for him. And yet there are moments there of real honesty in his anger. He's speaking to that journalist from Time magazine or he's having a go at someone. He's saying, who threw that glass down in the street? Who threw that? So it's probably as open and honest as he's ever been on film at any time of his life. And he probably closed himself down after that. But yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I mean, I know people compare them. I don't see it. No, I I don't. I've got to say, I don't see it. I feel like... And, and I like Dylan. I'm not insane Dylan fanatic, but I do like him. And I like, I really like some of his songs, especially the story songs. But because I don't necessarily think of him as a musician, I think of him as a poet who speaks songs to music. And because honestly, I... I've never thought much of the music behind a lot of the Dylan songs. The music is just there. It exists. Like, this music is absolutely gorgeous. Jaco Pastorius' bass playing, um, Joni's playing, the percussion, everything. There's some really interesting, not really, I mean, I wouldn't say melody. It's a different kind of a thing going on, but you notice it. That it doesn't take away from the vocals, but you do notice it. Now, to me, the Dylan backup music, I don't think I notice it as much. I'm listening to the words, 
I'm trying to hear the story. And I don't think of him as a singer because he just sort of speaks the words. Early on, he sang a little more when, earlier in his career. But I don't know. That's just me. Look, you know, I think that Joni... I'm not sure whether she considers herself so much as a songwriter as a poet herself. I mean, she's gone and said publicly that, you know, she's very much influenced by poetry and she's read a lot of poetry. I wanted to read something out. I came across an article that was from Acoustic Guitar Magazine, February 1997. And she says, I didn't really begin to write songs until I crossed the border into the States in 1965. I had always written poetry, mostly because I had to on assignment, but I hated poetry in school. It always seemed shallow and contrived and insincere to me. All of the great poets seemed to be playing around with sonics and linguistics, but they were so afraid to express themselves without sounding it in poetic legalese. Whenever they got sensitive, I don't know, I just didn't buy it. And yet I think that without sort of taking things out about rhyme and meter, I think that, you know, songs like Coyote, which we'll get to in more depth later on in the show, but that seems to me like poetry. It's more like she's rather than trying to fit a rhyme and meter like a lot of songwriters do, or even like she did in some of her earlier songs. It's more like a stream of consciousness, which seems more poetic rather than a songwriter's approach to me. Where do you sit on something like that, Shane, as a songwriter? Well, I think she's a great example of how the lyrics need the music. So in that sense, they're not 100% poetry, I don't think. They're song lyrics. I've seen some of Joni's lyrics set out on paper, and while there's a lot to be admired, I can't take it as poetry because it's, the music's just so integral to it. And that's what I think about Joni and her lyrics. I mean, they're, they're peerless, except for one song on this album, which I can't stand the lyrics to, but we'll get to that. But um, <laughs> it's all one thing to her, I think. The guitar playing, the way she approaches guitar playing is very poetic in a way because it's doesn't really adhere to any normal guitar playing sort of modes or rules and the same with the lyrics and the singing especially on this album it's all just breaking rules left right and center now isn't her guitar playing her approach to at least guitar tuning because she had polio as a kid and she had to change the tunings of the guitar to enable her to get the chords that she wanted yeah 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 she, yeah. Yeah. she never plays bar chords neither do i if i can if i can possibly avoid it but yeah and, and also she's always been a bit suspicious about th chords that are definitely major or definitely minor they're always hanging in the air somewhere between the two which i guess you call a suspended chord or she calls them chords of inquiry or inquiry as we say that's a big part of what she does nothing ever settles there's nothing's ever resolved and this is probably the same as the lyrics mm -hmm. it doesn't ever come to any great conclusion that i can see so yeah like i said it's all just tied into one big thing one big statement of art now, I know that the focus of this show is supposed to be Hijira, but it seems like, you know, the elephant in the room is the Joni fans, at least of the early works. You know, we're, we're going to stick with the 70s. It's either Blue or it's Hegira. And I think, you know, we should give a little bit of time to Blue. And in terms of the progression of her music, that it's an important tale. But this Blue came out in 1971, and it certainly does seem to be the album that most people think of if you mention Joni as an album artist. I mean, we're not talking necessarily about people who know Big Yellow Taxi or both sides now as a Joni song. But if you're going to talk about an album, Blue seems to be the one that 
a lot of people bring up. It was her last album on the Reprise label. And whilst it wasn't the last album to have the traditional Joni sound of that first run of albums... There are a couple of songs on For the Roses that are arranged to move in the direction that she went to from Court and Spark. And it seems that she's starting to move away from the more piano or guitar songs alone after Blue. So that seems to be maybe a cutoff point, not just because of the record company, but from an arrangements perspective. She started in baby steps going to different places after that. For sure. I think listening to both albums a lot over the last few months and paying more attention to the lyrics, I think it's not by accident about how the songs are arranged, how the albums start and how the albums finish, because there's a definitely a progression lyrically. Both albums seem to be very personal things. You know, his is about life on the road and affairs and motel rooms and what she could have had if she'd not done that. But Blue is often about romantic love and its failures. Blue starts out hopeful and in cynically. So you've got songs like All I Want and My Old Man, both emphasize the best parts of romantic love and dedication and feeling alive and being excited about it. I am on a lonely road and I am traveling, 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 looking for something. What can it be? Oh, I hate you some. I hate you some. I love you some. But Hegira starts out with Joni almost apologizing for life on the road, but ends up embracing it. You know, Coyote, which, as I said, I want to have a long conversation about that song alone, but Coyote almost seems like she's embarrassed. You know, she's, these are things that she does, there's affairs on the road. She has no regrets, but it's almost like she's apologizing for life on the road. But by the end, Refuge of the Road, she's embraced it. She said, this is my life. I'm more than happy with it. In Blue, by the time we get to the end of that album, and she sings The Last Time I Saw Richard, romance that the album started out with has become a very cynical endeavor. And you know, Richard tells the narrator, all romantic meet the same fate The last time I saw Richard was Detroit in 68 and he told me all romantics meet the same fate someday cynical and drunk and boring someone in some dark cafe You laugh, he said You think you're immune Sunday, cynical and drunk and being someone in some dark cafe. But, of course, his own life ends up being domestic and he marries the figure skater. They buy domestic products and they watch TV most nights, which nothing wrong with at all. But he starts a song of being very smarmily, predicting that that's never going to happen to him. So I, I like the contrast where, you know, the, the latter album starts off almost embarrassed with what she's doing and then ends up embracing it uh, so it goes slightly negative to something positive but blue starts off positive and ends up being very dark with a whole lot of other things in between it's um another one that i sang over and over and over again and it depends on what mood you're in you know which songs you want to sing over and over because <laughs> i've always really loved all i want and carry the wind is in for Last night I couldn't sleep Oh, you know it sure is hard to leave here, Carrie But it's really not my home 
hands are filthy I've got beach tar on my feet And I miss my clean white linen and my fancy French clothes Those two just, and they're just so happy and like, come on, Carrie, get out your cane and, you know, come on, let's go to the Mermaid Cafe, have fun tonight, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And then California is not happy or sad. It's sort of wistful. I'm over here uh, in Europe hanging out with some, what does he say? I met a redneck on a Grecian Isle. He did the goat dance very well. (laughs) But he kept my camera to sell. And then she goes back to, and then California I, you know will you take me as I am strung out on another man until my skin turns brown and I'm going home to California California I'm coming home oh, will you take me as I am strung out on another man California I'm coming home so, I mean, she's, you know, California is sort of a place, heaven, a man. It's all these ideal things that she's sort of escaped to, escaped away from. And now she's going to come back and she wants to find out if it, they'll take her back, which I always kind of like. And then River is her Christmas song. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, really. I mean, just, I mean, do, 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 you know, it even has that. I never, the last time I saw Richard, there's a line that I love. A waitress comes up to us with fishnets and a bow tie saying, drink up now, it's getting on time to close. And just the way she sings that, I love. The rest of the song, I'm just sort of okay with, but that part, I love. But A Case of You, damn, that is a sad song and it is so good. Just before our love got lost, you said I am as constant as a northern star And I said, constantly in the darkness Where's that at? If you want me, I'll be in the bar The beginning, just before our love got lost, you said I am as constant as the northern star Constantly in the dark, I said I'll be in the bar, you know? Well, no, constantly in the dark, where's that at? I'll be in the bar. I've always loved that. It sort of makes me think of like a 40s film noir, mm. the, the sort of the repartee between like a detective with a fedora and the, and the dame, you know, the femme fatale or something. And he says, hey, I'm as constant as, and she's like, yeah, constantly in the dark, I'll be in the bar. You know? <laughs> 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 this is what I think about that. It, Blue seems to be the peak of her confessional type of songwriting, I think. She, she was known to be totally open and honest about her affairs and dalliances to the point where Rolling Stone called her, to their eternal shame, Old Lady of the Year that one year, which is, I've never forgiven them for that because she, they, only, they only said that because she was so honest about it. It was her own actions that caused them in their dopey way to say that to her. And I think that might have been the beginning of her rejection of writing like that and, and becoming more impressionistic. Certainly by the time of Court and Spark and, and Hissing a Summer Lawns, there was very little of that going on. It was much more, like you said, more a stream of consciousness stuff you can garnish a meaning to it but it's uh she wasn't talking about her boyfriends much anymore there is a lot of that on hegira though there is a lot of that confessional stuff on blue and the couple before that it's more like reportage is yeah. <laughs> there's no uh you know ambiguity about it whatsoever which i think there is coyote could be a script to a movie there's nothing in it that says it's about her really mm. that's right that's how i feel about it she was burned i think by being too confessional in fact somebody said to her once i think it might have been jackson brown's the damn journey's 
keep something for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it might have been Chris Christopherson. Yeah. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, I knew it was a songwriter because only a songwriter would really know. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember there used to be a joke that said that like Blue did very well. It was very popular, and she's had other albums that haven't done as well. And it's like, well, when Joni's you know happily in love, her stuff's not as good. You know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's hope someone, someone breaks her heart so she'll write another really good album, you know. <laughs> uh, and she might go seeking that in a way, too, subconsciously. Yeah. A lot of songwriters do uh, create drama and chaos so that they can get some art out of it. But then supposedly neither here nor there in terms of songwriting, but musically she decides to pay tribute to Charles Mingus. And that yeah. was, I think, supposedly the album that killed her career to that point. I mean, I think she came back with some more conventionally pop albums in the 80s. I haven't really explored those terribly much, but yeah, apparently Mingus is what people say, right, we're done. Yeah, yeah, I don't like that album. Oh, well, we're having a lot of disagreement here. I love it. <laughs> it's all right. <sighs> but this yeah, is, it's, it's healthy conversation. Um, None of us have dropped off the core yet, so that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. like Don Juan's Reckless Daughter, which is uses some of the same techniques, but Mingus, because the melodies aren't hers, I think partly... I think she's crowbarring her lyrics into places where they don't really fit. That's all I'm going to say about Mingus. <laughs> well, you, it's so interesting. That, it's an interesting well, record. Yeah. No, I love, love, love her adaptation of Goodbye Pork Pie Hat. When Charlie speaks of Lester, you know someone great has gone. The sweetest swinging music man had a porky bright star in a dark age when the bandstands had a thousand ways of refusing a black man and I'll defend that for as long as this podcast lasts but <laughs> other than Joni herself the hero of Hegira sonically is Jaco Pastoris, who we've already mentioned. I don't have the vocabulary to describe in musical terms what it was that he contributed to bass playing in jazz, I guess, at that time. It's mostly the double bass players we often think of, like the aforementioned Charles Mingus or Ron Carter, who was part of the second great Miles Davis band. But in the electric world, maybe the only other bass player of the period who I can think of was Stanley Clark, who was revered for what he was bringing to the instrument. Instrument. Apropos of nothing, here's a funny story. I don't make it a regular thing to listen to the WTF podcast hosted by Mark Marin, but there was one time that he had Robert Trujillo, the bass player for Metallica, on the show. And he was there to plug a documentary that he directed about Jaco Pastorius. And he's telling a story that after the premiere of the film, they had an after-show party. So naturally, Joni Mitchell is there, having worked so closely with Jaco. But there was also Lemmy of Motorhead. <laughs> and on the surface, you couldn't imagine two more different musicians than Lemmy and Joni. But, you know, Robert says, I introduce the two of them. And there's a photo of the three of them. You go Googling it on the internet. Type <laughs> Lemmy, Joni Mitchell, Robert Julia. It's there. It's fantastic. So... Robert is introducing the two of them and Lemmy walks up to Joni and says, I got a question for you. How the fuck did you come up with that great chord progression on Court and Spark? I've always wondered. <laughs> and it just didn't imagine coming from Lemmy, but Lemmy was a huge Joni Mitchell fan and obviously from having seen the film as a bass player would have been a huge fan of Jaco Pistorius. 
And have either of you read the biography on, on Jaco written by Bill Milkowski? No, I haven't, but I've seen the documentary. There's actually a couple of documentaries about Jaco. One's more of a, like a, like a talking heads, just talking about him documentary. But yeah, I'd be interested to read that. Oh, maybe I did. I don't know. I can't remember. Really, it's pretty depressing, obviously. Yeah. You know, like he, he starts out as sort of the golden boy. He was everything he did, he put himself 100% into. He was a big basketball fanatic. He was always playing basketball and he played that with a lot of passion. He put his a lot, obviously, into his music and he was a multi-instrumentalist. We think of it as a bass player, but I heard a cut, I think, on the compilation of him called Punk Jazz. The track, I can't remember the name of the track, but it's him playing guitar and bass and drums and keyboards and he plays everything. <laughs> guys and he left this incredible legacy but unfortunately you know as he went on he became an alcoholic and he drank and he took drugs and it let him drive him to ruin and i think he got beaten up by a bouncer mm, yeah out, outside a show for giving him lip and he just bashed him to death yeah well you, you were mentioned before that the, the, the two big guys in that scene were stanley clark and jacko pastorius but they were uh, musically if i can just really be quickly they were very different they were coming from very different places because stanley clark was coming from funk and slapping the bass and all uh, you know larry graham and all that stuff whereas jacko i'm sure he could do all that stuff he was he was really translating what a lot of the uh, acoustic jazz players were doing onto a fretless electric bass that's what gives it i mean it's been imitated a million times now but that sliding double stop he was the first to do that did you notice the bass kerry when you when you first heard hajira was it part of what, what you were reacting to it's interesting to think how a non-musician would I, I mean i don't know if you do play anything but i used to sing i was a singer yeah yeah um, I was just sort of noticing the gestalt, you know, the the, the whole thing together. Whole yeah. yeah, it's so different. It's yeah. very striking to yeah. me. And you know, the first time you hear it, it's just well, that's really unusual. And yeah, and, and it's not immediately as accessible as no. a lot of uh, Joni's other stuff. Mostly also because of the song length. I mean, some of them are six, eight minutes long. Yeah. It's not bite-sized for radio or anything like that. So I think in that way, the first listen, you're kind of like, wow, this is just, it's just a lot. That's how I remember it. All the songs are very atypical for Joni, partially because I'm used to her playing piano. You know, oh, yeah. I mean, that's what I, oh, and there's there's nothing, there are no keyboards on here. No. She says that she was on the road when she wrote all these, so she wrote on the guitar because she didn't have a piano with her. Yeah. So that's why the album came out this way. I mean, which is kind of interesting. But I, one of the things I think I noticed was that it was, even though her voice is melodic, the songs themselves serve as a backdrop mm. to her singing. Backdrop makes it sound like it's inconsequential. I don't mean that because it's beautiful. It's just a framework. And then she's doing all kinds of other stuff in there. 
Yeah. And it's really fascinating to me as a mm. singer, try and figure out like how she did that. I just, it's very skillful. Yeah. I think if you're used to blue, there's a little bit of guitar on blue, but it's mainly, you're right, it's mainly piano and dulcimer. She uses dulcimer on a couple of tunes, which she played unlike anybody else. She didn't play it like an Appalachian person would play. She strummed it. Nobody's ever played it like that since. I never even noticed that, that Hygiera is mostly, well, all, all guitar. Yeah. And, uh, so, the, so the other sort of thing is thinking about this album and not, well, maybe Blue was the start of this, her vocal register. So if you listen to like the Ladies of the Canyon or Clouds or anything like that, she's singing in this really high register. The uh, Judy Collins and, type thing. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah. She's singing in a lower register. I mean, we're not talking necessarily that she's become, like she's changed from uh, like Marian Faithful's. Uh, no change change of voice well she kind of did I mean, if you listen to the she did an orchestral version album of, of a, some of her most famous songs with a big but not an orchestra but like a big band and uh, that's one of the last things she did and she's gone right down it's like you know oh wow dreams and schemes and she's right she's lost all the top end probably because she's a, an enthusiastic smoker i think yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, well in that case she's got something with in common with marion faithful life yeah absolutely um, yeah. i just sort of meant like in that initial run from those early albums up to Hegera. I mean, as I said, I've not really sort of focused that much on her uh, no. 80s stuff and beyond. Yeah, that one's worth checking out, though. It's beautiful. It's just, Have you heard that, Kerry? I think it's called Both Sides Now, and it's got a painting of her in a Van Gogh style on the front. I've heard some of the songs. Yeah, yeah. I have not it's heard lovely. Yeah. yeah, It's different. I mean, yeah, there's a breathy quality yeah. to singing there. Yeah, and it, and she it does keep tend to keep it in just a very a tight range. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. But And I can't remember who was but there was somebody I was reading about when I was doing research who said she's the one of the last of the great smokers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves it. She's not. Yeah, and it's caused her. I mean, she looks her age now, and I think it's got to be the smoking because there's other other contemporaries who are looking a lot better. I mean, she was been really ill. She's had some kind of brain stuff happening and. She yeah, looks very frail. Smoking does not help, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, I think she's got a bit better. She's made a few appearances out and about. So hopefully she, I don't know if she's, she'll ever make any more music. I think she's had it with that. I think she likes painting now. Yeah, exactly. I think she's just fully focused on her art. I think it was like her original motivation all those years ago. She was, she's been an artist all her life. It's not like <laughs> no, that's musicians right. who discovered it later on. She, it's always been a part of what she's done. It's not like she hasn't written enough songs. She's given us a massive yeah. body of work that we can still explore. I'm like, I listened to Hajira on the way to the gig last night. Just to, it's not, it's an album I'm very familiar with, but I was still hearing new things, especially in the lyrics. I mean, you know, I was still hearing songs where we, you know, like Blue Hotel. I've, it's never, that song's never really gelled with me. It should have been on really hissing on summer lawns. It's more that kind of song, but mm-hmm. it kind of gelled with me a bit more last night. So you can, albums like this, you can always find new things in. I think we'll get to discussing thematically what the album is about. I, I could sort of break it up into various parts and we'll come to those songs but just what I wanted to finish off a little bit about Jaco we associate him so much with this album and yet he's only on four of the nine songs on this album and I, I just want to sort of give a, you know, a bit of a shout out to uh, Max Bennett who's the other bass player on this album he plays on Song for Sharon and Furry Sings the Blues and I think you were sort of referring to this Kerry when you were sort of talking about how Joni approaches the singing she, it's almost like her voice is dancing across the melodic background or across the band background mm-hmm. but I also like to think that you know 
Jaco, his bass playing is dancing over this music. And I, I would have thought like every other bassist, I mean, the common thing is if you're going to record an album in parts, then it's always the rhythm section that starts and then melodic instruments come over it. But mm. apparently Jaco was the last musician to put his parts down for these songs. And I just... It sort of makes sense because he's he's not a support instrument. He's a lead instrument. And yet it still seems a little unusual. Max Bennett is not playing stuff in the Jaco way. No. and I, But I still wouldn't call necessarily all of what he does supportive. If you, I, I want to talk more in depth about Song for Sharon. But even there, he has that beautiful riff, which we'll come to, which sounds more like making it like a lead instrument. But he's basically saying, I'm not Jaco. I'm not trying to do what Jaco does. Just a beautiful contrast. And I love that there are these contrasts on that album. She later complained a few years later that she thought the bass was mixed too high on her year. I, I mean, I, you know, I don't agree, but she was sort of implying that Jaco almost bullied her into having the bass that loud, which I can see because he's, he's he was never backwards about coming forwards. I, I don't think it's true. I, I think it's right where it should be. But I'm with you. And the thing was, Jaco didn't have the name that he eventually came to have. He was he was not unknown, but he was not bass playing superstar yet. So yeah, well, he done. Um, it's, it's interesting. Done, he got away with it. He'd done weather report, I suppose, hadn't he? He's, 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 yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, that's true. But he was still uh, Jaco, great bass player for weather report. But it was that was still Joe Zawinul's. Yeah. Did he? I, I'm not sure if at that stage whether he'd recorded his solo album or uh, certainly hadn't recorded word of mouth yet. But I mean, look, his, his reputation was yet to come yeah. as a as a name. You know, he's one of the few musicians who we speak of by his first name alone. You know, Jaco yeah. and Madonna. Who'd have thought that there was a <laughs> element? But there you go. in terms of what he contributes, let's talk a little bit about some of these songs and the album opener Coyote is as good a place to start as any I sort of want to look at this what I was speaking about before with bookends I sort of want to talk about the contrast between Coyote and Refuge of the Road No regrets Coyote We just come from such different sets of circumstance I'm up all night in the studios and you're up early on your ranch You'll be brushing out a broodmare's tail sun is ascending and I'll just be getting home with my real to real There's no comprehending Just how close to the bone and the skin and the eyes and the lips you can get And still feel so alone And still feel related Like stations in some relay You're not a, a hit and run driver No, no Racing a hit you prisoner of the white lines on the freeway Shane, you were speaking about you know, Coyote just being like a highlight, and, and for that matter, Kerry, you were saying that Coyote and Amelia were your two favourites. So, I'd like to hear a little bit more about thematically, what is it that draws you in? Well, first of all, it's unlike most of the other stuff on the album. It's hooky. It's that little combination of acoustic, electric guitar playing those suspended chords just gets you in straight away. I know this song better than all the other songs on the album, mainly because of the last waltz, where the band 
it's there's a funny story where she wanted to bring her band or the guys that played on the album to play this song on the last waltz and the band said no no we will back you up and she just didn't believe that they could do it and they don't play it like the band does on the album but they do a great job they're very sensitive to the song so i heard it a lot before even getting to the album which i got a couple of years later it's like the whole album it's so conversational like you were saying about the song on blue this this constant stream of offhand thoughts and ideas that you know set up this idea about this dalliance that ha- seems to have happened somewhere in the west or somewhere i've read that this is specifically about the dalliance i can't remember what was the name of the playwright uh, uh sam uh, shepherd yeah sam shepherd yeah on well coming back to dylan on the rolling thunder review all right she was, okay she yeah. was on that tour i like the music and i like the melodies and i must say i really love her lyrics and her phrasing yeah. and the way she sings and speaks things like he's got a woman at home he's got another woman down the hall but he seems to want me anyway though he's yeah, yeah, yeah. it's interesting and the way she writes is the way writers I mean I have a lot of respect for the way she writes as a writer because it's very robust mm. it tells a story in very few words pins me in a corner and, and he won't take no I know what she's talking about <laughs> see that stare in a hole in his scrambled eggs yeah <laughs> and uh, it says a lot without four or five words you you really get a lot of mm. the story of the characters in the story so I see this less as a soundtrack of a movie but as a movie in itself yeah. as Shane mm-hmm. said that where if you close your eyes and you listen to it you see the story but she returns thematically to the, to the road you know I'm just a hitcher mm. you know I'm not here for the long term. I, I just get up a ways <laughs> up here, uh, you know. <laughs> I think is really neat. But then she does some other things that are sort of poetic and writerly like she the alliteration privately probing the public rooms and peeking through keyholes and numbered doors. There's an alliteration and it's and it's, she, and it's very staccato almost the way she sings it. The lyrics are just brilliant. I think they really tell a great story. All this music seems, well apart from Blue Motel, all this music music is very daytime music as I said it seemed to me like it was a soundtrack to driving across the desert and she did say that a lot of this was written on the road and I can see it I almost imagine like someone else is driving the car she's sitting in the back with a guitar with a notepad and she's writing these words out this song works not just for its style but you know, I mean you've already sort of gone and made these great lyrical references you know, this is a song about an affair it's not like Millie Jackson singing if loving you is wrong I don't want to be right Joni's acknowledging the affair and she keeps on saying I have no regrets but they're too different to make anything more of it this is a great song about sex and that's a very noir thing you know often you get a song that's lust filled this is not about i mean it's a song about lust about having lust but you don't listen to it like you might listen to i don't know a song by betty davis and think i'm so turned on there's that moment she sings he picks up my scent on his fingers while he's watching the waitress's legs. I only learned, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago what that phrase meant in Penny Lane uh, where Paul McCartney sings four of fish and finger pie. And all of a sudden, after years, 
ease of not knowing he picks up my scent on his fingers. I thought, oh, how dumb am I? That's what that means. Oh, it might mean a perfume. You never know. Uh, could... No. No. <laughs> okay. Don't think so. No, not going there. But within the space of two lines, and you were talking before, Kerry, about the economy of words. Within the space of those two lines, we know that Coyotes had great sex with Joni or the narrator, if it's not meant to be her, while thinking about his next conquest. Uh, you've already gone and said, you know, he pins me in a corner and won't say no. He drags me out on the dance floor. We're dancing close and slow. Now he's got a woman at home. He's got another woman down the hall. Uh, those lines, it's some of the best lines of lust. And I've got to say, I am a fanatic about lust songs, not just love songs. I like a love song, but I do love lust songs. And she's done it really, really well, but without wanting to turn the listener on. This is just, yeah, well, this is just my life, you know. And for once, it's a song saying, look, yeah, I acknowledge this is an affair, I'm, but I'm married to the road. Don't think I'm going to be crying myself later. You can think about me later on if you want to, but I'm not thinking about you. You just picked up a hitcher, a prisoner of the white lines of the freeway. I'm, I am married to the road. I think I did read one interpretation, though, of that line, which would make sense in the 70s. I'm still going with the, the, the literal white lines of the road, but given that it was the 70s and given that cocaine was the musician and actor's drug of choice, she could also be a prisoner of those white lines. But in the context of this song, it doesn't really make much sense. Yeah, I don't know. buy that I, one. <laughs> I'm lustful for you, but I'm addicted to cocaine. It doesn't work. The song's incredibly non-judgmental, isn't it, about him? Because he's obviously a, a scoundrel of the highest order. Uh, yes. Which is probably acceptable, accepted in the 70s more than it would be now. I mean, I, I think a modern singer-songwriter female would write it like this now i think they, there's too much stuff gone under the bridge i think I don't, I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing but yeah like she's an observer there's no criticizing him whatsoever as far as i can remember there's only one line though that i mean well there there are observations of yeah. the, you know the, the uh, steering a hole in the scrambled eggs stuff my son on his fingers while he stares at the waitress's legs but there's also you're not a hit and run driver no <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> 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 you know, early in the song you know and you kind of go mm, okay yeah <laughs> yeah but yeah, I mean she's it's a very human view of the situation which two people can find themselves in that kind of world if it's the rolling thunder review there's people obviously everybody's sleeping with everybody else I guess right. yeah and it's a great reportage of probably what it would have been like uh -huh. I, think. I just wanted to come back in context of this song with uh, Jaco's work on it and I like if you just sort of like think the first eight bars or so of the song like in any song, I guess, you know, we get like a, a rhythmic guitar mm. opening or a melodic hook or something like that. That's repeated several times before we get to the singer actually singing the, the song. We get Joni's guitar playing this very simple riff. Da, 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 ba, ba, ba. But yeah. all what keeps it interesting, a different bass player would have maybe just sort of caught up a a nice supporting riff and played that same thing over and over again. Mm. Jaco is, you know, he's playing the tonic for the first couple of bars. Then he plays, uh, I think, an F above C going back down to a very low C, which in its own way doesn't sound very unusual. But then by the time we get to the third one, where he's playing these harmonic patterns. time when I was learning guitar and a friend of mine was showing, oh, this is how you tune your guitar via harmonics. 
Mm. But what Jaco is doing here is he's playing these harmonics as music, as part of the song. So I don't know. Do you know, Shane, whether Jaco was a pioneer in terms of using string harmonics on a song, like as part of the melody, as part of the overall thing, rather than just using it as a technique to tune up the bass? Yeah, I recall guitarists doing it a lot, but I don't have any recollection of bass players doing it, except string book bass players do, uh, did. Yeah, but it, it's a case of luck because the key's got to be right. So especially for bass because it doesn't leap out at you like a guitar harmonic would. But yeah, guitarists have been doing it for years. So probably the first bass player I heard do it, though, was Jacko. Yeah, I think you're right about the, the way the bass dances around the melody. And he never really plays the same thing twice. But that's just because he's a jazz musician and they don't really, they're not really big on playing the same thing twice too much. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> the only other bass player who I'd sort of compare, and I mean, I'm sure there, there are tons of examples, but the obvious one in his way is Paul McCartney mm. because like Jaco McCartney was someone who was often dancing around yeah. the, the backup melody he wanted the bass to be when appropriate the lead instrument yeah for sure listen to Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds that's the bass's instrument mm. um, about the same time as this album Wings at the Speed of Sound came out and Silly Love Songs was the big hit single and the bass is the lead melodic instrument on that and yeah I, so I felt that stylistically two very different approaches but I sort of feel that the two were kindred spirits in that regard yeah for sure obviously they they would have both approached their songs totally differently but because i think even though mccartney keeps it moving he's he's i think he's pretty well worked it all out in advance whereas i think jacko is just reacting on the spur of the right. moment to the music i'm not sure about you know you said that he put his parts on afterwards that's what uh, i'd read is that is that confirmed because it just sounds like he's playing with the band with the guitars to me as i went and said to someone in the facebook group i had gone and done some reading on Joni Mitchell's official website. If anyone's gone and written a magazine article or a scholarly article about her work, they've gone and reprinted it on her website. One of the right. best official websites. I mean, there's a lot of terrific fan websites about musicians, but this is you know, far and away the best official website I've read. And I have a feeling that that's where I read in an essay somewhere on there yeah. that his part was added later on, that the rest of it had been already recorded. Well, it's, it's a great job because it doesn't feel like that at all. It feels like a man reacting right in the moment with the other musicians because that's how jazz players work so um i don't know it, it's amazing if that's true i'll see if i can find that article and i'll uh, post the link as i said earlier on i love the bookends of this album because it's the beginning and the end of this movie i mean although each song is like a little movie into itself whereas i think that the tone of this is her almost saying look i'm on the road she's sorry not sorry about it <laughs> it almost sounds like like, not quite like she's maybe I'm wrong maybe not that she's apologising for being on the road but she feels she has to explain what's going on on the road whereas it seems that by the time she gets to Refuge of the Roads she's far more comfortable I met a friend of spirit He drank and womanized And I sat before his sanity I was holding back from crying he saw my complications And he mirrored me back simplified And we laughed how our perfection would and the story goes that she had gone and consulted with a Buddhist teacher she'd met, a guy called uh, Chogyam Trungpa, and Joni had described him as the bad boy of Zen. Um, 
he, he wanted to make Buddhist teachings accessible to people who had little time for it. Readers digest Buddhism, I guess. Um, Sounds but, like my kind of thing. <laughs> uh, so, do you have your own demons? Demons? Oh, I suppose so. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about them in public, though. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. I'll turn off uh, the recording. We'll get to that afterwards. <laughs> Seemingly, this guy did have his demons, and you know, he, he drank and womanized, but he taught... Joni the value of humility she spent I can't remember it was like a, a week or something like that with him and she just spoke to him about his teachings she's referring to him in the song in terms of his approach to Buddhism and I don't think that it's unlike a lot of other musicians who found themselves through religious teachings be it Richard Thompson or Pete Townsend I don't think that that was Joni's way but no. she but she wasn't going to throw the baby out with the bathwater so well but there's some interesting things that I can take into my songwriting or can take into my approach to life. That would always be the case with her. I think she, she's just looking for stuff to use. It definitely wouldn't have taken, I don't think. She's never struck me as being a particularly spiritual person. Not not in that way anyway. Spiritual in the, her about a life, maybe, but not in that generalised... It would all have been about what she could get from it, I think, which is any songwriter worth their salt would be doing that anyway, I think. Should be. I mean, look, I'd love to know exactly where she was when we coming back to those songs on Blue, like All I Want and My Old Man, which are songs about loving domesticity. And this song is about loving life completely away from that. I, I mean, I wonder whether she had a mental change for that, whether she... I mean, okay, in Song for Sharon, which we'll come to, she does say that originally she wanted a husband and a family. Mm. But I listen to these songs and I can't see at any stage, at least once she started recording, that she ever had any love for the domestic life, that she always wanted to explore different things. And Refuge of the Road seems to really just nail that in. The rest of the album is about, well, I had life on the road and I've got this problem. And Blue Motel is about, well, I miss you. Here I am on the road and I miss you. And here I am just in this motel. But this is, no, I'm owning this. I'm not apologizing for anything. I love this. I seek refuge on the road from life in the suburbs. Being a woman, to be honest, I think, you know, I can perhaps understand a little bit more what she, what she's getting at here. And I've read about her before where she made the conscious decision to not be domestic because she saw what it did to people back home in her little town in Canada. She had relatives who had longed to be artists or singers or some kind of, you know, more artistic or literary type thing. But they got married, and so that all ended. It was all over. They were now, this is, they're locked in. And back then, too, you got married, you know, uh. you stayed home, you had kids, you washed clothes, you put up preserves. That's what you did, especially because she lived in a farming community, a lot of work and, and all that. And I think she saw that, and, and you hear that all during, in my opinion, you hear that during a lot of this, where she's constantly having to make the decision. It's not a decision that she's like, I, I feel like every time she meets someone, she makes that decision again. Mm. So she's consistently going to be heartbroken because she's going to fall in love. She's going to really want to be with that person all the time. But to do that, she would have to give up going on the road. She would have to give up 
and she feels she would have to give up basically her artistic life. And so she, I feel like she makes that decision every day. It's it's like, you know, like an alcoholic makes the decision every single day not to drink or something. That to me is the kind of thing she's doing. She talks about it more deeply in a song for Sharon, but she also talks about it in Amelia. I went to Staten Island, Sharon, to buy myself a mandolin. And I saw the long white dress of love on a storefront mannequin. Big boat chugging back with a belly full of cars. All for something lacy. Some girl's gonna see that dress and Song for Sharon is a good song to bring up. I, I sort of wanted to go there next as part of this trilogy. I sort of thought, like, if if this had been an EP rather than an album, it would have been, for me, Coyote. Well, at least thematically, I think the three songs that represent it best would be Coyote, Song for Sharon, and Refuge of the Road. And Refuge of the Road is not in my top three songs musically, but in terms of telling this story about a philosophy of the road, I like to think that Song for Sharon is sort of maybe like the, the pinnacle where she has still some confusion as to whether life on the road was necessarily her thing or not, but she never mocks her friend Sharon for the choices that she made. Well, she could be a little bit envious as well in, in, a, yes. in, a, in a weird way. I mean, she had domestic bliss with Graham Nash, who she adored, but she still scuppered it because it was too comfortable. He's riding our house, which is all about the per- per- perfection of it, and she's probably writing something about the fact that she's going she's to end it any minute now. The last time I saw Graham... <laughs> I think that broke her heart because, I, well, that's what River's about, isn't it? But still, she did it, and you know, all power to her because it's not easy to do that. It's easy if you're rich, I suppose, because yeah, at least you've got that. To, <laughs> at least you've got that on your side that you don't have to depend on. I mean, if you're an artistic woman and you're depending on your husband for income and for, to shelter you, man, that's got to be hard. And some women do do it; they leave it all behind and go for an artistic life. That part would have been a bit easier for her, but still, you could just tell from the songs, especially that, that it's broken up. Yeah, I mean, because that, that's what My Old Man and All I Want, that's Graham Nash. Yeah. And then, and then later on, River yeah. is also Graham Nash, I guess. Yeah, I think so. I think it's pretty, it's got, because it's just straight after, so it's got to be, because she wasn't, that, that lasted a while. That, that, yeah, that was a couple really. of years. I mean, yeah. they, had, they had a home together, but you can hear, I've gone and uh, lost the best baby that I ever had in yeah. River. Yeah. It's so heartbreaking, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting that by the time she gets to this album, there's no songs of regret. There may be songs of anti-regret. Yeah. The, the opening words on the album are No Regrets Coyote. Yeah. The beauty about Song for Sharon is it just plays out as more I'm telling you a story. It's a narrative. Sharon, you'll always have your music. Um, I can't remember the exact words, but she's singing. You'll have your music. You have your family. I'll have my road. I'll find my happiness by and by. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. Do we know who this song's about, or is it just about a, a married a, friend? It's her friend, Sharon, yeah. that yeah. she grew yeah. up with. Yeah. From Saskatchewan, right? Right, who apparently wanted to be a singer and had a right. good, yeah. strong voice, but ended up marrying a farmer and staying in that area and having Did, the life that was expected of most women at the time. Yeah. You know? yeah. It would have been hard for her, but do we really think that domestic bliss is a, an, an enemy of art? I'm not sure if I, I actually really believe it. I certainly don't believe it. It's true. I don't think you have to be bereft of all art if you end up getting married, but there are trade-offs. They always say, like, 
women can have it all. Like, yeah, I guess you can, but boy, you're going to be tired, you know? <laughs> yeah. Children, especially if children are on the scene for a few years at least anyway. But women and men do it, don't they? I mean, it's probably more because women usually take the biggest responsibility when it's the children are involved, I guess. But yeah, I just think as a, as a blanket thing, it's like Cyril Connolly said, a pram in the hall is the enemy of art. I don't know, it just seems too glib to me. I mean... It is. I think if you so make a decision not to make art because you've got children, that's a decision you've made. I mean, some people right. just have to make art, don't they? You know, it's no matter what. Some people successfully do it. I mean, everybody's different. Journey decided that she couldn't do those two things together. And maybe right. she couldn't. But the nice thing about this song is that, based on the lyrics that I quoted at the end, paraphrased from the end of the song, is that she's never dismissive of Sharon. No. She's talking about her experiences, some of them not necessarily great, but, you know, she's saying not at all patronizingly you have your family you'll have your music to sing for your family yeah i'll find my own way and i mean in other hands on another voice it could sound like a patronizing statement yeah but i truly believe that she's genuinely happy for sharon that yeah she's happy with her way he said that's your way this is my way we're two happy people i wanted to point out something structurally that i love about this song and it'd be interesting to get your take on this, Kerry, as a writer. The structure of this seems like really good story writing. So, and I sort of combine this, the modulations in the song help drive the narrative here. So every verse, it's the same melody over and over. There's no chorus. We get these modulations which change the dynamic and then we end up with a twist. Uh, so in one verse she says, Dora says, have children. Mama and Betsy say, find yourself a charity. Help the needy and the crippled or put some time into ecology. And this section establishes a part of the narrative where friends are giving Joni uninvited advice on how to live her life. Um, and then we get the modulation. Uh, she's saying, well, there's a wide world of noble causes and landscapes to discover. In that key modulation, Joni's protagonist's own voice saying, I acknowledging your saying some well-intentioned advice. And then we get another modulation and she's saying, but all I really want to do is find another lover. That's like the key twist. We don't see it coming. <laughs> just sort of, anyone else might have sung that as if to say, I just sat in the corner and I kept my mouth shut. But, she, <laughs> but she's saying, really, I just want to go back to the Coyote song and just get it on with the next guy after Sam Shepard. She's not saying that to them, though. She's thinking it, I think. Maybe she's saying it to them. It's, oh, never, maybe, explicitly, yeah. it's never explicitly clear, but I just love that she's very open. You know, she could have said something, I just want to open up another bottle of scotch. I don't know, but <laughs> she's saying, I know you're giving well-intentioned advice, but fuck that. I want to get laid. And... <laughs> great causes but that's not my thing this is a song in a way a song of reminiscence as well you know she reconciles her current existence while on a visit to new york city with her childhood in saskatchewan i think i love songs of reminiscence and like there's we were talking i think before we recorded shane about don walker and culture yeah. and the second catfish album there was a song called the year that he was cool and <laughs> the days when things were great and some people moved on and others didn't and aren't they pathetic you know that's the attitude of that song <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, this this guy he was the coolest guy in town and everyone else has moved on and they come back for a visit and he's still there chundering in the street and carrying on about how what a cool guy he was and then there's a couple of great Paul Kelly songs 
both actually from his album Comedy. The song Your Little Sister is a Big Girl Now is I'm getting married to the wrong person. Your younger sister used to be a nuisance, but boy, is she hot right now. Uh, oh, that sounds like a Steely Dan song. That's, that, oh. that, that's, that's moving into the area of Cousin Dupree and all those kinds of things. Oh, people. right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Uh, but then there's the other song where he talks about his own life. He, he sings, I can't believe we were married. We had a great married life. How the hell did that happen? I can't stand the sight of you. Oh, that happens. And, <laughs> but in, in Song for Sharon, it's never any regret. All these songs are songs of regret or mockery. And I mean, I'm sure there are millions of examples. Uh, I've just sort of given the three that came to my mind while I was putting these notes together. But I love that this is a song of reminiscence and it's not over glorifying, gee, weren't those great times, which a lot of songs can do. But it's also not mocking them either. It's just this was my life in Saskatchewan. This is where I went. This is how I ended up. Uh, Musically, I see it as a centerpiece of the album, but also story wise. I see this as probably my favorite story on the album. And the nice thing is that this is not a Jaco song. This is a uh, uh, Max Bennett. And I, I love his bass playing that riff. Absolutely beautiful work on that. You know, I always thought that those, you know, that Journey's got this style of doing wordless backing vocals. Mm. It goes right back to Woodstock. On this song, it almost sounds like mocking Greek they chorus. Can Of all the friends that aren't, you know, that, that are doing this, living this kind of life, being at her to do these things. And it is a like, part of her palette because she's done it quite a few songs. Yes. I was listening again this morning to uh, Ladies of the Canyon and I can't remember which song it was, but she does that Greek chorus thing. Yeah. <laughs> There's never any lyrics. It's always a, a, it's almost like used like a, almost like a string section or a horn section or something like that. It's very good. It's very cool. A lot of singers, they'll hire a backup singers to get maybe a contrast to their own voice. But there's something about her voice that sounds, I don't know, is it almost ghost-like when yeah. she's doing all the backup vocals, the multiple harmonies. is just no one sounds like Joni. It almost sounds like an indigenous chant of some yeah. sort, you know? Yeah. That I've heard before when I've watched, you know, Native American yeah. dances and things like that. I don't know. It has that ring to it to me, but it's so much higher. It's like, you know? Yeah. Like Morris said, she uses a different part of her voice. She goes fully into, I think it's fully into her head voice, and and it's an effect. There's a certain sound you get. I mean, I've done it sometimes in my own demos where I mass voices together and if it's your own voice there's a certain overtone or harmonic that you get that you don't get if you just put four or five different singers together it's a totally different sound and it's obviously one that she's returned to again and again it definitely a massive part of this song and like you said the, the bass riff which i i think partly comes from the johnny's guitar part as well because she's she's sort of suggesting it there as well sort of thinking now about that voice that's possibly like the only thing where we're coming back to the early style of singing yeah. that she had because you know once again there's nothing on this album that has her voice like on morgantown no well, I was thinking last night, I was listening to it, that she's obviously copying a lot of phrasing from horn players. That's, that's what I think it is. That, the way that a, a, a sax player, like a tenor sax player, or just glides through the melody. Knowing how she wanted a wider sonic palette, that completely rings true. Yeah. Um, like Kerry was saying before, the melodies, they never really settle. They're always moving. And even if she has got a melody for the song, as she's doing a vocal, you can tell that she's 
singing around it rather than on it. That takes chops to do as well. Well, yeah, absolutely. There are a couple of times when you, you see that she's in Coyote, you'll be brushing out a broodmare's tail while the sun is ascending, and I'll just be getting home with my reel-to-reel. There's no comprehending, right? Yeah. Well, so what she does the, there's no comprehending, you know, and she's yeah, yeah. sure yeah. that she hits all those, and she does it in all of the spots in that song, it's, but it's the only thing that's sort of where she's hitting a note that is like pre. Yeah, just, sounds like she liked that one and just stuck with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's so much of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot, Shane. Okay. We, I don't want this to. Well, actually, I do want this to sound like a Joni Praise Fest, but you were saying beforehand that there's one song on the album that doesn't work for you. Yeah. I'd like to find out what is that song. Okay. So it's not musically, because musically it's killer, but it's Furry Sings the Blues. Street is coming down. Sweetie snack bar boarded up now. And Eggles the tailor, and the shine boy's gone. Faded out with ragtime blues. And he's cast in bronze, and he's standing in a little park with his trumpet in his hand, like he's listening back. Because even though she sort of admits it in the song that she's indulging in cultural tourism, it's still, there's lines on there that still make me cringe and grit my teeth. Not all of is it, it, but... Is the, it the line about W.C. Hand? Oh, it's I, just awful. Uh, this is obviously a true story. This, it can't be made up. They, they've been taken to Fur Lewis's place. And um, they're only welcome for their scotch, fair enough. But then uh, there was one, she sings, I don't know the exact line, but it's, there's one song that you played that really touched me. And, uh, and it's like, well, who, who fucking cares what touched you? You know, uh, it's just blues tourism at its worst, I think. it's Basically, it's walking in Memphis with a slightly more artistic viewpoint. It's all the things I hate about that song, I hate about this song. It's just some white singer-songwriters using these people's art to sort of bolster their own. It's the only song on the album that does this. I mean, this is a whole separate conversation argued <laughs> about the whole the history of, of uh, pop music, can't Yeah, it? of course. But we're talking about Hegira, so it's kind of personifies that in one song. And she does it artfully, and you can't complain about the music. It's pretty great. Uh, but when the song comes on, oh, and then, of course, Neil Young on harmonica, who uh-huh. seems to be playing in a totally different key. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. That could have been a, an artistic decision. I don't know. But it's that makes me grate my teeth a little bit too. She should have got a decent harmonica player to play over those changes because he can't do it. Yeah, but that's not my big deal. It's, it's just the whole approach of the song and those few lines. And you picked it straight away, didn't you? WC Handy, I'm not familiar with your music. Yes, well, yes. before you wrote the song, go and fucking check <laughs> and listen to some of the songs before you write about it, you know? <laughs> I'm with you there because that I got to that part when I was like, "Is she talking about herself? Yeah, is she is she actually saying that she's this person? This is awful." You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think so. I think she is because yeah. she's she's alluding to the art of songwriting, so she can't be talking about anybody else. I don't yeah. think anyway, unless she's writing about some other singer songwriter that got taken to W. C. Handy's place and. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, there are certain things that I think are really well done in the song. Mm. I mean, the, the thought process of the song, I'm not crazy about either. But yeah. I don't know. Some of the stuff. Uh, she sets the scene very well. It's not. I, it's yeah. skillful. I mean, the the, yeah, the whole yeah. thing about the, the leg removed. You propped up in his bed with his dentures and his leg removed. <laughs> <laughs> well, it paints a picture. It know? certainly does. Well, what do you think, Morris? Does the song have a similar effect on you? Or are you you happy? No, no, not really. I mean, look, I I just see this as a postcard from the road. If a lot of the songs on the album are about travel, then, well, we've made a stop over here. And I certainly don't think that her intention, I mean, maybe it doesn't come out that way. No, I don't think she was being particularly malicious or... Yeah, that's exactly it. I sort of think, what was in her mind? And maybe she wouldn't have written that song 30, 40 years later, but I don't think it was patronising. I don't think it was meant to have a laugh at his expense or anything like that. But she, no. she it was like a, it was a character study. It and is patronising, but whether she meant it, well, who Whoever means to be patronizing, I don't know. But I don't think she meant it to be no. patronizing. So. No, I don't think so either. I think it's more a character study of Beale Street yeah. and this right. demolition of Beale Street at the time and that whole the lifestyle and the whole because you know you're seeing a an older gentleman who's obviously past his prime, probably you know, not performing a whole lot inside of his room. And then he holds he has these people over and they they come in and they gawk at him and, and then he tells them he doesn't like them. I don't like you. I don't like you. (laughs) I'm with him. I don't like her either in this. (laughs) Like everything on this album, it's about her. In this particular song, that aspect of it doesn't 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 work. work. For me, the weak spot on the album is A Strange Boy. A strange boy is weaving A course of grace and heaven On a yellow skateboard Through midday sidewalk traffic Just when I think he's foolish and childish And I want him to be manly Oh, yeah. uh, the song is about a relationship where you know the singer is waiting for her man-child to grow up, and it does explicitly describe part of their mutual experiences that they got high on travel. But the way I read it, it's about a journey where she wishes that he'd make that journey from immaturity to emotional manhood. Right. Given everything else on that album, that lyric doesn't ring true. Uh, so that, you think it's not? Doesn't ring true. Do you think it didn't happen, or you think it? I've read that it did. Apparently. One of the the Rolling Thunder review, I mean, one of the re- it kind of fell apart, mm. right? And one of the reasons was that she was apparently having there were dalliances, there were not just her, but there yeah. were you know, and and so everybody ended up fighting and they got, so she ended up taking a road trip, a long road trip with two men. I don't know who they are, but apparently one of them was a really young man who was a flight attendant and. He was just really young and really immature, but she still had had kind of a fling with him during this road trip. She was missing being with a real guy, I mean, to her, you know, being yeah. with someone who had, who had achieved full manhood or something. I don't know. He was immature, but she had a fling with him. She drove, like, all the way across country, apparently from, like, Maine to California, and then she went back by Florida. You know, she drove down south and came up the east coast of Florida and um, never had a driver's license. Oh, that's right. I'd read that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> she just like stayed behind trucks because she knew that the truckers warned each other when there were police up ahead. And so she stayed in with all the truckers. <laughs> and so she was able to not get arrested. <laughs> So this That's guy obviously he's... wasn't, uh, kind of been in years much younger than her, because she, well, how old was she, about 28 or something? I don't know. Was, well, but so, he, and if he was a flight attendant, he, he had to have been in his 20s. Yeah. Being he, a detective he, here. He, I don't know. he was not, maybe not in years, you know. I mean, she says something like he still lives with his parents. And apparently, <laughs> well, he was probably incredibly gauche compared <laughs> with her, you know, who's had, you know, he's probably had two or three girlfriends and she's had insert list here. Obviously she's using this as a catalyst for another artistic expression. Then you guys don't think it particularly works on this. Not for me, not for no. me. I mean, I don't care about the lyrics or, or what it's about, to be honest yeah. with you. I just don't like the song. Yeah, it's all together, isn't it? It's it's all like the melody and the singing and the lyrics. They all have to work. That's why Furry doesn't work for me. But, but there's so much on this album that does work that it doesn't. It's only a couple of tunes. It's, it's no, it right. doesn't matter at all. Go yeah. Name me an album that doesn't have a dud. Another song that I think is great, but I'm questioning why it belongs here. And I'm talking like musically I know as what well you're as say. lyric-wise. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's talk about songs about hotel rooms um i'm a fan of songs about hotel rooms so there's a couple by aladdin wainwright oh yeah yeah motel blues which is pretty sleazy it's uh, pathetic as well <laughs> but well, in a yes, good way <laughs> as, as, a, as a lot of his as a lot of his song characters tend to be but of course then there's the other one the antithesis and this comes back to maybe the domesticity sort of thing there's this song called i'm all right yeah uh, which is a comedic song about feeling great after a breakup you know he sings this one verse about how he's looking in the medicine chest for all these things and you think there was poisons and there was medication and all these sort of things but i reached for my tooth floss i had my favorite kind unwaxed and i'm all right without you and geez i woke up this morning as a blue song it starts off yeah. i woke up this morning and was sleeping in a hotel room on the road and had nice clean sheets on the bed and nice artwork on the walls and that's got to be the most different hotel room song the antithesis of something like Chelsea Hotel Number no. 2 by Leonard Cohen. See, I think knowing Loudon Wainwright, that song is not happy at all. He's just trying to convince you and himself that he is. He's probably yeah. miserable as all fuck, you know. He's- <laughs> Because that's how Loudon works. He, he'll twist it on you. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he's saying, how can I write another nasty song about my wife, my ex-wife and children? Who's going to be affected by that song more than his ex? Him saying how <laughs> wonderfully happy he is. So hotel, motel songs. Yeah, so Blue Hotel. Inside my head Will you still love me When I call you up When I'm down Blue Motel Room Blue Motel, yeah Musically, it sounds like the sort of thing I'd expect to hear from Julie London Yeah and I, I, I mean that song. is hype it is a torture. The phrasing, her phrasing on this song seems like Billie Holiday yeah. in a way to me. And given its extreme personal nature, it almost sounds like it should have ended up on blue. Lyrically, it's the opposite of Coyote. In, in Coyote, she not only has no attachments, she's telling her lover, don't get attached to me. In Blue Motel Room, she's singing about missing someone while stuck in a motel room in Savannah. I think she sings, I hope you'll be thinking of me because I'll be thinking of you while 
while I'm traveling home alone. That's just the antithesis of everything on this album. This is a great song. Don't get me wrong. This is not a song I dislike. I like this song a lot. But mm. it, I'm thinking, how did it end up here? Was it something to fill in time? Which is not likely because it's a 50-minute album, which is pretty long for the vinyl-only days. I mean, CDs, everything and went to 70 minutes. It's a quiet record. I know I've got it. It's not cut loud. And uh, mind you, also in Hegira itself, the title song of the album, she references a hotel room. Coming back to the overall themes about this album is it's about times on the road. It's about being places other from where you nominally call home. I tend to think about being on the road as being in a car or being in a tour bus. Um, but you've you got to stop somewhere. So there's the hotel room. And Tell me about it. Well, um, well I'd, I'd be the last person you'd, you'd be able to tell you'd know more than any of us about. Um, but then there's also the songs about flight we should come to so, but any any sort of thoughts from either of you about Blue Motel Room? When I first heard it again like when I started listening to this al- album again to get ready for the podcast I actually looked it up because I thought it might be an old standard she was covering. Mm. Mm. It sounds it. It is different. You know, it's singular within the the album, but the thought process is not because she talks a whole lot about an ambivalence toward the road. So she has the like, I love the road, and yet it separates me from those I love. So she's torn, you know, all the time. And so here she is in this blue motel room. She's in Savannah, presumably because she has a gig, which she enjoys and she's chosen to do but she misses her loved one who's far away and she's telling keep away from the other tell them you have German measles isn't that the one yeah (laughs) and I want to know what a boom boom pachyderm is (laughs) (laughs) I just it's the funniest line it's an elephant isn't it the elephant in the room that goes boom boom I don't know is it a a euphemism for a body part I mean I don't I don't know (laughs) Because it's like you've got all those pretty girls hanging on your boom boom pachyderm. <laughs> <laughs> It's whimsical, isn't it? it? Musically, it should have been like, you know, on Hissing a Summer Lawn, there's that centerpiece thing. It's like that. Obviously, she's going through lots of different things while she's traveling. So that's going to be one of them, isn't it? For me, musically, it doesn't particularly fit. Yeah, it is, it's very different musically. I, I yeah. agree. But I want to emphasize, I still think it's a gorgeous song. Yeah, for sure. Not mm-hmm. right for this album. The final point I want to bring up is about the theme of flight. So as I said, everything comes to my mind when I think about being on the road is actually being on the road. You're driving or you're being driven. Travel, which is the theme of this concept record, can include flight. And there are two songs involved in flying. I want to give the floor to you, Kerry, to talk about your favourite song or one of your two favourite songs on the album, Amelia. I was driving across the burning desert When I spotted six jet planes Leaving six white trails across the bleak terrain It was the hexagram of the heavens It was the strings of my guitar Amelia It was just a false alarm I love this song. When I was preparing for this uh, podcast, I listened to Coyote and Amelia just a lot because they're my two favorites on here. Amelia is gorgeous. Just the language 
the hexagram of the heavens. It was the strings of my guitar. There's some stuff that's just absolutely gorgeous. Just some of the stuff that she talks about, like people will tell you where they've gone. They'll tell you where to go. But till you go there yourself, you re never really know. Where some have found their paradise, others just come to harm. When she sings that part about others just come to harm, there's so much angst in that line. It just absolutely hits me. I love it. And then uh, other parts, like, I wish that he was here tonight. It's so hard to obey. His sad request of me to kindly stay away. Ooh. <laughs> you know? It's just, wow. You know, it, the whole thing. But there's so many things in here. The one that really gets me is like Icarus Ascending. Like Icarus Ascending on beautiful, foolish arms. That is such gorgeous language. And then she sings it beautifully as well. Yeah. She has this big swell and she's beautiful. You know, there's this huge swell trailing off to arms. And it just, I don't know, I find it absolutely beautiful. But there's also the same thing about the economy of language again. I pulled into the Cactus Tree Motel, motels, <laughs> to shower off the dust. Well, boom, that tells you a story right there. You know, she doesn't say, I went to a hotel and checked in and got a room and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Mm. You know, I pulled up at the Cactus Tree Motel to shower off the dust. Yeah. Says it, but it's beautifully, it's melodic, it's yeah. gorgeous. Her voice is really, really, really good. Just a beautiful song. I mean, it's not really about flight at all, is it? She's just using, I think that she's using Amelia Earhart as a, a metaphor for being lost, not arriving or something. You know, like I see Amelia in this song, Amelia Earhart, as someone who she talks to. You know, she's on the road. Yeah. Like Amelia was an aviation pioneer and no one really understood her or she had no one she could talk to. I think Joni or Joni's protagonist in this song is basically saying, right, you know what I'm going through. Mm. Uh, look, there is one verse that probably directly refers to Amelia Earhart. The saddest verse, I think, in the, in the song, a ghost of aviation, she was swallowed by the sky or by the sea. Like me, she had a dream to fly. Like Icarus ascending, Icarus, on beautiful, foolish arms, Amelia, it was just a false alarm. I just sort of see it as like, I'm on the road. I can't get access to my shrink. Uh, I've got to have someone to talk to. I've got to have a confessor, someone who mm. I trust. I don't trust the guys in the band. I can't talk long enough on the phone. So in my head, I'm just confessing everything to Amelia Earhart. Mm. And that's how I see it. So yeah, not directly flight, but like flying, you can soar to great ecstatic experiences like performing in front of an appreciative audience every night or crashing back down to earth is the next morning when you're going to get back on the bus you don't have the crowd cheering you on you're away from people you love and you're just in the middle of nowhere so it is sort of still about flying and I love it does have that one direct reference to Amelia Earhart in this song she's always had a fascination with jets and planes and flying and anyway she's always tended to come back to you know like in Woodstock she talks about the jet fighters and then this flight tonight and it's one of the motifs that she uses a lot I think and the other song about flight which is possibly the darkest moment on the album and we have Jaco's bass work on this that probably helps bring the darkness on this is Black Crow mm. There's a crow flying black and ragged tree to tree He's black as the highway that's leading me Now he's diving down to pick up on something shiny I feel 
And that certainly serves to me, my mind of anyway, of uh, Joni's life, well, presuming it's her life. I presume that this is a metaphor for what's happening in her life. This song, you can almost imagine it being played by a, a hard rock band. It, there's not many chord changes in it. It's just that insistent riff. I can't hear that in my head, but, <laughs> um, but there are people with far greater arrangement skills than I have. I'd love to hear it. The riff sounds quite similar to Whole Lot of Love by Led Zeppelin. And that runs through the whole song. Maybe that's why I thought that. I would certainly wouldn't attempt it. I think it's, <laughs> you know, although, you know, that British or the Scottish rock band Nazareth did a version of This Flight Tonight, which if you haven't heard it, is worth listening to at least once. Mm. <laughs> I heard their version of Love Hurts. Oh, yeah, OK. It's probably more interesting than that. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> no, no, do yourself... Well, I'm not going to say do yourself a favour because you might, you'll probably hate it, cause, but... <laughs> Because of the person I am, that's the version I heard first. I, did, I hadn't right. heard Blue until later after I heard the Nazareth version. I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> in this song, Black Crow, she's singing, in, in search of love and music, my whole life has been illumination, corruption, and diving down to pick up every shining thing. Just like the Black Crow flying in a blue sky. That is, you know, as, as confessional as it gets, mm. if it's about her. And I mean, really, that sort of serves as a metaphor, I think, for anyone in life. You know, it's not just the musician who's looking for the next great gig experience and looking mm. for adulation. We're all looking for something that's bright and shiny and we'll dive on that and only to find out, oh, it's not what we first thought it was and we end up getting disappointed. But do we learn? No, we keep looking for the next bright, shiny thing. And it mm. could be drug intake or it could be, you know, trusting the same type of partner every time but yeah flight is metaphor yeah well it's a human it's being human isn't it basically yeah exactly yeah absolutely i do like that song though i think it's oh it's a great song yeah, yeah. pretty dark though <laughs> um, <laughs> Any final thoughts on this album? Because I think we've sort of covered conceptually what it's about, and I think we've gone down some interesting musical arrangement roads, but in closing, anything that either you wanted to want to bring to it? We've talked about, I know my favorite is Amelia and Coyote, mm. and, and I just love the language in this. And Hegira, the title track, not one of my favorites. I mean, it's fine. The the part that I just, when she does waltzing on a ballroom girl, when that line, waltzing on a ballroom girl, like it's, I, that. It just comes out of nowhere, and it's that one line. I could listen to that line. I just love the the notes. I mean, but there are a couple of things in here that are just absolutely beautiful. To me, this whole album is just lovely. I mean, it's yeah. just, and it's very different. I don't know another album that does the kinds of things it does. I mean, it, it does follow a theme, you know, pretty much throughout. And it has gorgeous language and really lovely music and very different. Just mm. as Morris has said, her voice dances over the music and even some of the musicians are dancing yeah. over music as well. You don't see that in every album. It's the, the only other album I can think, and it's a bit of a cliche, the only other album I, I think 
think they can even be compared to it as Astral Weeks. When you first listen to Hajira, it sort of sounds like one song until you start separating everything up and start getting used to it. It's all got this one vibe, except for a couple of instances. And that's the same with Astral Weeks too. There are a couple of moments that bring you out of this reverie, but it's the double bass and it's the language, which is stream of consciousness. They're not similar at all. It's the only thing I can think of that's even close to it as a piece of art, uh, except that the bass is in tune on Hajira. That's the... <laughs> <laughs> what, are you, what are you saying about Richard Davis? You're that he's playing he's, a bit out of tune. Or, oh. Either he's a bit out of tune or Van's acoustic guitar is out of tune, but something's not in tune. I'll put it on Van. Richard Davis is a consummate professional. And- <laughs> If I ventured in the slipstream between the viaducts of your dream it's sort of one of the features of a double bass anyway that it's sort of never really in tune anyway but because the songs are so simple it can't move around that much it doesn't stop me enjoying the album but and it's lovely but it's a bit out of tune (laughs) (laughs) sorry well there you go we've gone and pissed each other off on this show My comments about Steely Dan and Frank Zappa and your comments about Richard Davis and I don't remember who else. Never mind. Concludes our conversation about Jenny Mitchell and Hijira. And if you're one of the few people who are listening to this episode that haven't heard the album, I'm presuming that if you've downloaded this, it's because you're a Jenny fan. But if you haven't, consider this from all three of us an urgent go search it out. Yeah, listen to it first. <laughs> or go buy the record or the CD. It's not on the streaming service. It starts with S. And so go buy a physical media copy. Like Kerry did with that inner sleeve that's as long as a Christmas song. <laughs> oh, I wish you could see it. I should have taken a photo of uh, you holding that, Kerry. We could post that in the group. Um, <laughs> Kerry, I know that your professional writing is getting in the way of your glorious film writing. I'm still going to put a link to both your blogs that are up there. I was reading just this morning your article on Jacques Tati's Mononc, and you're talking about Joni having a beautiful way with words. You really have a way with words. Sorry if I'm... We say in this neck of the woods pissing in your pocket and your neck of the woods we say blowing smoke where the sun don't shine but um, beautifully written beautifully described now I'm going to dig out my tutty box set and watch that film again thank you for doing that but can you can you see a time in 2022 where you say look I'm going to make do with less sleep and I'm going to write something film film related yes yes I absolutely want to yes I I, I am going to I'm putting a stake in the ground to say that yes, I have, to, I have to start writing for pleasure again. I, I won't say that my job is not pleasurable, you know, but it's the subject matter is not necessarily always what I want to about. But but uh, yes, I absolutely will. And you'll be the first to know. I'm going to send it to you. Good. Thank you. I appreciate it. Fly to Australia and throw a koala <laughs> at your head or something. Right. Yeah, if you can find one. <laughs> 
Okay, so Shane, we were speaking at the start of the show that you've got this fresh new venture, Casey King and Dolly. Yeah. And I'm going to put on the show notes how people can track that down, how people yeah. can buy a copy of that from Bandcamp. But for the New South Welsh listeners, you lucky people, you've got gigs lined up for the next yeah. three, four months. So if Byron Bay does go ahead, are you booked to play there? Yeah. This third time the charm? Yeah, we are. We're definitely, And it's going to go ahead this time. There's, I can't see, unless some horrible new strain that makes your head fall off turns up of COVID, it'll happen. Yeah. And we've got other gigs leading up to that as well and after it as well. So but obviously we're limited by how often we can play just because of the busy lives of all of us, really. I mean, I still have stuff with the Bondi Cigars and the trio as well. But this is the one that at the moment for me is just mainly because of the being, being able to sing harmonies, uh, which has always been a big thing of mine. You know, harmony bands are always my favourite. Yeah, that's happening. And if you go to our Facebook page, or uh, you'll see where we're playing. And- Fantastic. Well, any Melbourne promoters... Any national promoters who can put them out on tour. Yeah. uh, We will get there by hook or by crook. Probably by crook. (laughs) That's how the music industry works. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You've got all the contact details earlier on in the show, so I won't repeat those. We'll just go back to the beginning if you don't remember them. Next month, March of 2022, I'm inviting on a guy who I'm very happy to say I've become good friends with. He's a, a drummer. I first heard him years ago play for the Overnight Jones, which had previously been the Warner Brothers go back to our Warner Brothers episode of uh, early last year I'm talking about the drummer Ian Kitney but Ian Kitney's a multi-instrumentalist and he, as well as the Overnight Jones he played for a time for uh, Tim Rogers side band the Temperance Union but Ian moved many years ago to Japan he's um, ensconced himself there and he's got a studio at the back and he plays everything and he plays it well so as well as being a drummer plays guitar hate plays, him already oh well <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> You'll only be able to hold that for time for a little while. A lot of his music is sunshine pop. Okay. And you can't hate him for being no, sunshine no, pop. No, of course not. He's um, no, a really terrific songwriter. He's got a bunch of albums on Bandcamp. Super lovely guy. And he's coming on next month, not to talk about his own music, although inevitably we will. But I said to him, what would you like to talk about? And he said, I really, really fancy talking about Ogden's Nut Gone Flake by Small Faces. So we're going to have some fun with that. And my my confession here is I don't actually have that album. I've got like a Small Faces best of. Mm. I mean, I have obviously heard that album, but it's the hits that I know more of uh, Small Faces. So this is going to be a bit of a, uh, oh, a journey yeah. for me. Yeah, yet to savour the delights of happiness, Stan. I have heard it, as I yeah. said. I okay. have heard it, yeah. but I've not consumed it as much as like you know, the the big hits. I have an original British copy of that uh, with a round cover on it and everything. It's... Oh, wow. Feel free to send it down if you don't want it. Oh, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With, with that, thanks very much for listening. I look forward to uh, getting Kerry and Shane back so we can be like a trio again i've super enjoyed this conversation i love these trio type shows and actually just as a god i can't say goodbye yet i I take a long time to say farewell but i posted online yesterday i think yesterday or today is the 40th anniversary of xtc's oh yeah english settlement album and that was another trio show where yourself myself and jeff perlman spoke about that album a few years back so i want to get him back and we do a trio album with that i love trios yeah it's great why strangely enough all right so um with with that farewell everyone be nice to each other don't go saying vindictive stuff on the internet don't be like everyone else be nice be encouraging with all that all the best cheers
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.